Thank you for tuning in for Oh My Pod. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to rock. Thanks for joining us on this special episode of Oh My Pod. My name is Jay Kuo, and I'm head of Team Takei here in New York City. George Takei is here with me, and we're also joined by a very special guest, his husband, Brad Takei. Say hi, Brad. Hello. (laughs) Good to have you here. Now, Brad, is this your first time doing a podcast? It is. I'm a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) Well, I thought I would take this opportunity to do something I've actually always wanted to know the answer to, which was, what was life like before the internet for you guys? Because I met you back in 2008, and we didn't launch our uh, adventures together online until around 2011. And so there was a period of time where, uh, you know, you were going about your lives without the, the extra meta of the internet hanging over you all the time. Well, before the extra meta you talk about, I had an extra meta called Star Trek. <laughs> I, you know, for me, it was exciting to get a series regular job. I mean, week after week for three seasons, that was so exciting, but the ratings were always low. We were canceled in uh, 69. That was when the uh, phenomenon of conventions began. The internet aspect to that question you asked is, in 1999, we registered the domain www.georgedecay.com, and we used that from 1999 until you entered our lives for George to have a fan page and George did a monthly column. So he sort of had a internet presence all during the 2000s mm-hmm. that we started realizing the potential of the internet even before it, it skyrocketed with you. And it was basically a great opportunity for George to connect with his fans. And what, what were the fans like back then? How would you describe them? They were frenzied and dedicated, particularly because many of them were people that uh, were considered outsiders, not part of society. And so their love for Star Trek and the idea of inclusion, working in concert with uh, each other and uh, bringing out the best of everybody, they put their passion into letter writing, uh, email sending. These conventions at the, at the beginning were all organized by the fans. They weren't corporate like they are now. Do you prefer how they are now, or did you prefer those back then, the fan-organized fan conventions? The old uh, fan-organized conventions were much more genuine, real, and we really connected. The uh, big, massive corporate uh, conventions are just that. Brad, do you remember your first Star Trek convention? Uh, Yes, it was back in the early 1970s. I knew Jerry Friedman, who changed his name to David Gerald, who wrote the Trouble of Tribbles episode, and he would create tribbles for sci-fi Star Trek conventions, and I would have to box them for him. (laughs) Did you find that troubling? 
<laughs> I trembled when I was boxing them. <laughs> the difference between then and now essentially is the so-called amateur conventions in the early days were more hands-on for George. So-called professional conventions are less fan-friendly for us because they herd us around and it's security around and it's not as fun. Now, there was a time, though, uh, when the Star Trek convention started getting more corporatized. And and uh, back then, it was usually Bill Shatner that was uh, headlining or Leonard Nimoy headlining. And then there would be other guests, and you would, you were among the other guests who would come to these. Well, there were other conventions put on by this one individual who started promoting the four of us. Jimmy Dewan, Nichelle Nichols, Walter Koenig, and me as the Fabulous Four or the Fab Four, and we were the headliners. So yes, there were conventions where Bill was the uh, the the main attraction or Leonard was the main attraction. Dee did not like doing con- conventions. He he was he was basically a shy man. And he didn't like crowds. Uh, it, it terrified him, actually. Strange for an actor. Now, did they pay you? To, oh, of to... course they did. <laughs> <laughs> was, and... He charged for, uh, for those conventions so, in, uh, from the, uh, uh, fans. So, of course, we got paid. <laughs> People assume that he, he's made a ton of money on reruns, residual checks. But explain the truth to that, George. <laughs> It was uh, uniformly for all uh, all of us. It was the standard uh, residual contract. It paid residuals up to the 10th rerun. But in those days, most series did not go beyond the third or at most the fourth rerun. And then they just disappeared into somebody's vault. So we thought, surely, I mean, that fifth or sixth or seventh uh, rerun would not happen well, when we went into syndication after cancellation, they showed Star Trek five nights a week from Monday until Friday. And so the residuals are handsome, but they were rerun over and over and over again. So uh, after about five years, the uh, residuals stopped. It's now in its 10,001st <laughs> rerun. So it's all uh, going to... Uh, NBC and uh, Paramount. And Brad, would you want to renegotiate that contract now if you had a chance? Yes and no, because it was a contract. We were big boys and big girls, and we knew what we were signing. And I don't cry over spilt milk. Everybody has those things like that piece of property I should have bought that, you know, skyrocketed in value. Uh, It's just that's isn't that what life is that sometimes you don't get what you want. But then besides the residuals, Star Trek brought a whole life that was completely unexpected and still going strong 52, 53 years? 53 years 53 now. years now. It's a phenomenon, an amazing galactic phenomenon. And certainly, I've seen so much of this planet, not not the other planets yet, <laughs> although Elon Musk is talking about uh, tourists going to Mars. Now, would you go if you had a chance? I would like to. Well, after he's tested it a couple of times and, and uh, proven that it's, it's safe, I'd like to do it. I think it would be a wonderful adventure. You hear that, Elon Musk? Are you listening? George Takei would like to go to Mars. 
we've uh, gone on one of these uh, gravity-less flights already. Oh, that's right. In in the uh, early, I had zero G envy of you watching me do that. <laughs> it is certainly something I want to try myself. Well, I want to have five G envy of you <laughs> when you get it. <laughs> now, Brad, did you go on the zero G adventure? Rod Roddenberry, the son of creator Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek creator, invited us, and I joined George and Rod, and it was fun. Just fun? Did you did you freak out? No, but I was glad not to be next to the woman that had a uh, digestive <laughs> problem. And he, I, he was terrified. He did not enjoy it at all. <laughs> but it, for, for me, it was a, an absolutely extraordinary sensation. When we were going up, we're um, lying flat on this mattress, and you feel this enormous pressure on your body. You feel like your body is being pressed against that mattress. And then suddenly, my leg is going up. I, I thought, well, why is it doing that? And when I was wondering at my leg floating, my arms are floating. And then my body goes up. And there we were, just floating in, in midair. And Brad was cowering. <laughs> I said, Brad, just spring off. <laughs> now, he's giving you a hard time, Brad. Is this how you remember it going down? Yes. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> I, I, I grabbed him, and he curled up into a ball, and I threw him up. <laughs> now, you can do that in zero G. <laughs> you can. You can. I, I threw my husband in a ball and just threw him up into the air. George always says I'm morbidly obese, but in that particular situation, <laughs> he was throwing me around. I have like never I called weightless. you morbidly obese. <laughs> I never Now, uh, George, you made a bit of a splash uh, in 2005, I believe, by coming out publicly to the press. What were the circumstances, again, just for the listeners? Well, let me, let me put it in the larger context. Uh, I've been an activist on almost all social justice issues. It started with my uh, childhood incarceration and my father uh, uh, during uh, my teenage days when we had many after-dinner after conversations, told me that uh, in a people's democracy, you, we have to be actively engaged in the process. And uh, he took me downtown to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters. And then I understood what uh, a people's democracy involves. We have responsibilities, and we have to actively be a part of uh, the democratic process. So you got good at losing a democratic uh, election. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I supported <laughs> Adlai Stevenson. He tried twice. Actually, he tried a third time, too. Maybe it was you, George. Maybe it was like... <laughs> uh, well, no, no, because I make some investments <laughs> that you might be aware of. <laughs> you make your commitment to the one that you really connect with. And uh, then uh, I got involved in the George Brown for U.S. Senate from California. He was someone who voted no on the Vietnam congressional bill, and I supported him all the way. So you've been active throughout your career and your life in politics. I've been involved in the civil rights movement, in the uh, uh, peace movement during the Vietnam War, and then uh, in the 70s I... Um, became active in uh, getting an apology and a token redress for uh, for our unjust incarceration. 
Stonewall happened in 1969. It was a galvanizing uh, event for, for LGBT people. And yep, many people, young men and women, were sacrificing their jobs, their careers, sometimes their families, and, uh, and actively, wholly, physically and spiritually uh, involved in the uh, uh, gay liberation movement. And parallel to that, I was involved in all these other social justice movements. But I was also pursuing an acting career. The year that Stonewall happened, 69, was the year that Star Trek got canceled. I was unemployed after three years of steady employment. And so... Not a great time to come out. I had to protect my career. And believe me, watching all these people give it their all. And here I am protecting my career and staying silent when I'm vocalizing on all these other issues. The guilt that I bore was enormous. It was a heavy, heavy burden. And I maintained that. But, you know, when... Uh, AIDS happened, I, we had to participate. So uh, I participated with my checkbook, but I remained silent and not visible in the movement. Now, did you and Brad talk much about whether you should come out or not? We did. We did. But Brad understood, you know, that, that that's my career. Brad, did do you have any specific recollections about conversations you guys had? In the context of the times, it was normal for working professionals such as myself being a non-celebrity guy who just went to the office every day to be in the closet professionally and not to tell anybody that I was LGBT. Similarly for George being a working actor, being in the closet, that, that's how the marketplace worked in those years. We would still be members of Human Rights Campaign. We would still be members of GLAAD in its early years. We'd write our checks to various LGBT supportive causes. But officially, if George were being interviewed by the media, there was like an unwritten rule. If they say, how's your love life? George would do innuendo answers to that question, but not revealing that he, he, he was gay. So that was the system in those years, and we all played along with it. Brad was a financial journalist, and particularly in that arena, too, not unlike an acting career. You know, if you were out, the prospect of your continuing at your chosen uh, profession would have been jeopardized. So we were both closeted, and we talked about the anguish of being closeted, particularly when we saw these other guys giving everything. To the cause. But in 2003, Massachusetts got marriage equality through the state Supreme Court. It was a landmark event. And two years later, on the, the West Coast in California, our state legislature, the people's elected representatives, passed the marriage equality bill, which required one more vote, the signature of our governor, who happened to be a movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger. When Schwarzenegger uh, campaigned for the uh, governor's seat, he campaigned by saying, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my friends are gays and lesbians. 
And I thought with that kind of campaign rhetoric, he probably would sign the bill. But when the bill landed on his desk, he played to the conservative right wing of the Republican Party, his base, and vetoed it. Our blood was boiling. That's when we had started that very serious discussion about coming out. Whose idea was it? Well, the guilt was getting too heavy. I mean, here are these young people out there risking their lives. I was well into my career, and I thought we were past that point. And we decided, you know, we've got to uh, come out and take a stand. And I spoke to the press for the first time as a gay man and blasted Schwarzenegger's veto. George, have you had an opportunity now to confront then-Governor Schwarzenegger about his veto? What would you say to him? Well, what we know now is that while he was uh, vetoing our equality bill, when at the the same time he was carrying on with his housekeeper right under his wife's nose, you can't talk about morality to a man like that. I mean, vetoing our bill, and at the same time, he is in a sanctified Catholic marriage and carrying on with his housekeeper. He is in no position to be uh, talking on uh, our marriage or anyone else's marriage. I think ultimately, when George came out publicly as a gay American, he was 68 years old, and he and I had a backup contingency plan. We knew that casting agents in Hollywood would no longer cast George because he was openly gay. This was our perception. But at the same time, George felt that in this stage, he could go into acting. The stage entry level for stage actors, openly gay, is no (laughs) obstacle. And since he was upcoming in a play called Equus at East-West Players, that was sort of the timing we used for George to publicly announce that he was gay. And from then on, his career skyrocketed. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what that, so that was a bit unexpected, that, that his career actually took off after that. I was uh, prepared for the beginning of the fading of my career. But the reverse happened. Uh, The media became very interested in my story. Uh, I was uh, at that time in rehearsals for, as Brad says, uh, for Equus, which is a wonderful role. You know, Leonard Nimoy did it on Broadway, and he came to see me doing that very same role, and he came backstage, (laughs) and I asked him, well, Leonard, you did it. What did you think of my version? And he said, you were better. <laughs> That's Leonard. He knows how to deflect a question. Um, but the reverse of what I expected. People started emailing me with supportive uh, emails. I was on the board of uh, the Japanese American National Museum. And, you know, Brad went to all the uh, social events with the spouses of uh, the museum of, of board members. And uh, there was always a kind of a awkwardness. Um, Brad was George's friend. You know, we've been together for decades by then, but still he was his friend. But once I came out 
and uh, really announced our relationship, uh, the uh, board members became quite comfortable and their spouses. And you were married shortly thereafter, is that right? Three years later? Uh, we got married three years after that. So who proposed to whom? Well, we were um, having lunch at home, and the news came on that the California Supreme Court this time ruled in favor of marriage equality. And I had my mouth full, but suddenly uh, Brad slipped out of his chair and was on the floor. And I, I, I said, and he said, George, will you marry me? <laughs> and I swallowed and I said, you beat me to it. I was going to ask you. <laughs> Is that how you remember it, Brad? Yes. <laughs> He's a strong, silent type. I, Gary I Coop. I often have to ask because I've been in conversations with both of you quite often where Brad will start having this look on his face. And, <laughs> and I just know that, that he wants to say something because George isn't getting it right. So. <laughs> George has a certain number of memorized stories and he repeats them 1,000 million hundred times. But that is the truth. That's the way it happened. And it, it makes you look better because you took the initiative. <laughs> That's true. Now, around the same time after you came out, you also started working a bit on The Howard Stern Show. Do I have my chronology on that? Right? You have, uh, the, uh, correctly. I'd done The Stern Show before when I had a book coming out or when I uh, was doing a play uh, in New York. But I was always uh, reticent about doing that show because of the nature of that show. But after we came out and I became active in... Uh, advocacy for LGBT equality. Um, I went on a speaking tour with, uh, arranged by HRC, the Human Rights uh, Campaign. And I'd look out at the audience and then later on after the talk, mingle with them. And these were all either LGBT people or uh, friends or relatives or allies. And in order to make some changes and to uh, make societal uh, uh, level of understanding uh, and tolerance uh, to raise that, uh, we needed to reach that decent, fair-minded, broad middle. And uh, we weren't reaching them because it was on a gay subject. And so we thought Howard Stern has a broad listenership. And those are the people that we want to get to. And so we negotiated and we agreed to a week every quarter, every three months. And Brad, you were on board for this? I told George that Howard Stern was probably the best on-air announcer in the United States. And he was hugely talented and George should do the show. I've come to uh, love Howard now. He's a, a dear friend. But at that time, you know, it was just Brad's show that he always listened to. The, the thing about Howard Stern show is it is on Sirius XM. And to listen to Howard Stern, you have to pay to subscribe. So although Howard Stern has adult content, it it, it, 
you can't stumble upon it. You have to actively search out Howard Stern's Channels 100 and Channel 101. So when George is on it, it's he's reaching an audience that loves Howard Stern, and George joins that ensemble of on-air talent, and it, it's a wonderful party for all the listeners. And in some ways... Um this was sort of a preview into what might be possible on social media, that if you, if you put out great content, you can reach a broader group of folks. Initially, I know when, when we started the social media, it was Star Trek fans and LGBT fans, folks who are generally over 50 then. Mm, uh, who that's you, right. <laughs> uh, fans who, who, who had been with you through the decades. Exactly. And the thinking was, well, social media now gives you an opportunity to reach so many more people, people who are millennials. Exactly that. A new generation. Because uh, I could kind of measure the passage of time by doing Star Trek conventions. Before, they, they were the fans that came up to me. But then it, uh, it came to, to a situation where uh, people would come up and say, uh, my dad is a big fan. And I said, oh, well, what about you? Oh, yeah, I watch it with him. You know, But then it became my grandfather or my grandmother likes you. And now the last time I was with you at a Star Trek convention, a lot of folks know you from your social media and the ones exactly. who are 30 and under especially. Right. Right, right. And, yeah, they love me on the social media and they also love me on the Howard Stern show. <laughs> I've always wanted to know your days before the social media craze. Sort of what your uh, a typical sort of day would be like. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, punt that over to Brad. I remember when I first was getting to know George in the early 1980s, and I would be at his house. His telephone rang constantly, and George was always doing this community event or organizing this activity. And I was amazed at how busy George kept himself. So even in those years, pre-internet, George had, he, he always exhausted himself in how he made commitments to the community. I, you know, I was an activist even before Star Trek uh, in political campaigns. And so um, I became active in the uh, mayor's campaign, Mayor Tom Bradley, and he asked me to be the uh, chair of his Asian American committee. And when Tom Bradley got elected uh, mayor, he appointed me to the board of uh, directors of the Southern California Rapid Transit District. And his mandate was to get started on building the first subway system in Los Angeles. Tom Bradley was a visionary. He wanted to make downtown the quintessential uh, center of an urban and urbane city. We couldn't continue to be an automobile-dependent city. We needed to develop a heavy rail subway system. And so I participated in that campaign fully. I didn't pursue my acting career for that period of time. For 11 years. 11 years. And then the movie started up. Uh, uh, ten years later, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, came. And was and that surprising to you? I thought, uh, how am I going to manage it, you know? But uh, when push came to shove, I uh, arranged it so that I could be at meetings and still uh, manage to work in my days on the set. 
And Brad, did you were you surprised by this development that he was an activist, sort of a politician, and then suddenly on a movie star again? Well, in those years, I just kept realizing how different George Takei is from other people. His phone would ring, and and it would be Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los <laughs> Angeles. His phone would ring. It would be Jane Fonda talking about some <laughs> entertainment project. His phone would ring, and it would be one of his Star Trek castmates. And that just clued me in that the path I was on with George Takei was going to be different than the one I probably fantasized when I was growing up in Mount Baldy Village. Now, Brad, at some point, you left your career to sort of focus more on George's career. When was that? That would have been in the late 1980s. I was a journalist working on daily newspapers and monthly magazines, and eventually I helped George with some of his public relations, press releases, and various projects. And by the early 1990s, I realized that George needed a bratter in his life, and that was me. He needed somebody to help make sure that things got accomplished so that he could be the visionary and artist and I could do the detail work. And it sort of gradually evolved that I became his business manager. And it sort of helped since we were with each other 24-7. At that closeted era in our lives, I could say I'm his partner. And it, you could either interpret that to mean business partner or significant other partner. That's very clever. Actually. Brad was more than that. I mean, we're, we were a, a perfect fit because uh, when I get busy, you know, I get a little sloppy and uh, don't take care of the details. Brad is obsessively detail-driven, organization-driven, punctuality-driven, gets does everything to do the things that I can't do, I don't do, and I would be a disastrous. And I think we're an interdependent team. I couldn't do what I do without Brad, and Brad couldn't do what he does without, obviously, me. <laughs> so uh, we're a perfect fit. George actually is a pack rat. But it turned out to be good because just a couple of years ago, we were able to donate like 125 bankers' boxes to the Japanese American National Museum of George's acting career because George hoarded everything. It's now in a museum. So fast forward a bit. Um, it's early sort of 2000s, um, and the Star Trek movies are done. What was sort of your trajectory in your own mind then about how things would go? Well, I I love my career. I love acting. I love writing as well. And so I thought it would be that. But at the same time, I'm a very civic-minded uh, guy. My life up to that point had been uh, in the political arena as well. And I knew that would continue. And fortunately, it's worked out that way. The take-home point of this conversation for the podcast listeners is that there was never a master plan with George Takei's career. We woke up in the morning, we had these fires to put out on that particular day, opportunities would come to George. Essentially, as a working actor, 
if somebody offered him acting employment, the answer is always yes. Not always. We've turned down projects. Yeah, but anybody that does an IMDB review of your acting career will see some interesting choices that you made. What are some of the interesting choices in your view? What, ninja cheerleaders? <laughs> yes. But ultimately... I wish you hadn't talked about it. <laughs> there are some projects that I just soon forget. <laughs> what? The dirty little secret is that George Takei is hugely talented, and pretty much anything he decides to tackle, he is successful at doing. And he's been great on radio. He's been great on television, feature films, social media. But the most important talent he has is having a wonderful relationship with his husband, Brad. <laughs> I couldn't have a career without you, and I couldn't have a life without you. You uh, make everything possible. <laughs> now, you still have a, you know, I, I am booking time with you frequently, and I know how hectic your schedule can get. How do you, at age 82, how do you keep that kind of schedule? Where does the energy come from? Well, you know, Life is full of changes. There was a time when I could just dive into the day. And I, I, I still try to dive into the uh, day in the morning. But uh, for the past, uh, oh, maybe eight or nine years, I've had to take power naps. So it's a matter of uh, recognizing uh, the, uh, the energy content of your body and adjusting to it. George doesn't know himself as well as you might think. He still only sleeps four and a half, five hours a night. He More than that. has tremendous energy. He has amazing intelligence <laughs> and capacity to, for example, memorize pages and pages of dialogue. And I don't really think he's slowing down as much as he thinks. Yeah, I don't get that sense either. In fact, in all the years we've been working together, George, I've only seen you accelerating. Just looking back this year, you you have a graphic memoir that's a bestseller now 11 weeks on the New York Times. 11 weeks, yes. And you you were a uh, guest appearing on a uh, on the Terror Infamy. Right. Uh, as well as uh, running your social media empire and traveling around the country giving talks all at the same time. Well, that's part of the mission, you know, the terror infamy or allegiance or some of these other projects that I'm engaged in is to raise the awareness of a chapter of American history that uh, involves me very personally, the imprisonment of innocent Americans of Japanese ancestry simply because we look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. The ideals that we talk about, uh, due process, all men are created equal, equal justice under the law. This is a nation of laws, ruled by laws. Wonderful ideals, but a people's democracy is made up also of, of fallible human beings. And whether you're the president or a city councilman or a common Joe citizen, you know, we're fallible human beings. And we saw a great president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 
prove himself to be a fallible human being. He got stampeded by the war hysteria and the racism uh, right after Pearl, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and he did something that was absolutely shamefully un-American, uh, putting in innocent people uh, in these prison camps. But it's because we don't really know this history. I'm still surprised when people uh, that I consider well-informed uh, people, when I share my childhood imprisonment with them, they're shocked. They don't know this history. We clearly have a president currently who is ignorant of history generally, and certainly of this chapter of American history that I'm involved with. And so that, uh, to raise that awareness has been part of my mission in life. And because we still haven't got that knowledge, we are repeating it again uh, on the southern border or with the Muslim travel ban. And so, I mean, this is going to be a lifetime calling, I think. But that's what keeps uh, another aspect of me going. Well, Brad, did you know when you met George that you were signing up for the lifetime <laughs> mission of education on the <laughs> Japanese-American internment? Not necessarily, but it's been a blessing to be George's husband for the last 11 years and being his partner for the last 33 years. And my sense is that George is making a difference in American society with his outspoken comments, and I love him so much for what he does. Well, you know, actually, Brad, in many ways, is... Uh... Uh, uh, an un unofficial Japanese-American. He knows more about the Japanese-American experience than some younger Japanese-Americans. Well, I often think of Brad when, you know, I'm as more or less like a political spouse. You've been on a political campaign basically yes. since the 80s of one shape or form. And Brad has been there uh, along with you, hearing the stump speech, listening to it modify uh, Brad, how does that how has that felt for you over the, over these many decades? It's been fun, and I mean, think about my life and how blessed I am. We went to the Kentucky Derby one time, <laughs> where George was the, one of the celebrities, and I spent the evening with Buzz Aldrin and his then wife Lois with George, and so Buzz Aldrin, second man to walk on the moon, mm -hmm. he looked at my entree I was eating and he said, that looks good. And I, and he ate half of it. <laughs> so I not, not everyone could say that. They both alternate half their entree. Yeah. I can name drop names and it's because of George. Well, the Star Trek conventions, uh, where I'm uh, autographing, the line is long and being in a line, line can be very boring. What Brad does is uh, he works the line when I'm signing, and he keeps the people engaged. And he, he's becoming a, a celebrity on his own right because people fall in love with Brad, and they want to ha have uh, photos of uh, Brad. Brad, to do, join do you us charge as for well. those, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's very My generous. My autograph should be very expensive, <laughs> and George's should be cheap, but. It's the opposite. Mine is free. <laughs> His is rare. It's hard to get Brad's uh, autograph. Mine, there are billions and billions of my autographs out. Well, I, I've been with you where you are uh, 
greeting fans after a show, and you will stay there greeting them for 45 minutes, an hour. And I've looked over at Brad, and he's got this look. <laughs> he's got this look. What's that like, Brad, watching George greet every single fan? Is it like Elizabeth Warren and her selfies? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's like, but I do remember when George was performing in Allegiance on Broadway. Every night he would sign the playbills after the show. And one night, freezing January night, I looked around 90 minutes after the show finished, and there is George, the one remaining fan, the policeman, and me, <laughs> all by ourselves outside the Long Acre. And that really summed it all up. <laughs> well, George, you're known for taking the, your time with fans and, and, and that making a big difference in their eyes that you will stay. And, and does it ever get tiring for you? Does it ever get just... Do you ever get jaded about it? You know, I always have in the front of my mind, I am who I am and where I am because of them. I mean, certainly uh, Allegiance, uh, it's a Broadway musical. It's not cheap. And if you uh, don't live uh, on Manhattan Island, you have to travel some distance, whether it's from Brooklyn or uh, for Allegiance. Some people on the West Coast flew to New York. These are the people that build and, and sustain a career. And I think it's uh, foolish for an actor not to uh, appreciate and honor and uh, accommodate the people that make your career possible. It is part of uh, uh, who I am to say thank you personally to the people who, who make it possible for me to uh, do what I love doing. Now... After social media happens, uh, in addition to having a lot of millions of adoring fans online, you attracted a lot of critics and trolls. Uh, do you ever run into any of these folks in person? Does, do the trolls ever come for you as they do online? I suspect that most trolls are cowards. They don't like to show their faces. Uh, they don't want to... Uh, have genuine human contact. They uh, they are frustrated, angry people, and they want to vent their uh, evil on people where they are anonymous. That's the thing about social media. Uh, it, people are anonymous, or it can be, and that gives them license to be as vile, as despicable, as repellent as they can be. But Basically, in reality, they are either uh, insecure or shy or just nebbishes. And has any of those have any of those people ever come up to you in public and berated you as they sometimes do online? No, I've never experienced that. How about you, Brad? No, it's an uh, interesting dichotomy, isn't it? The uh, just the other day, George announced on his platforms that he's going to be a MC and host of a symphony concert in Chicago. And so then I, you know, it was just a standard press release announcement. And then I looked down at the comments and they were so mean and, oh, this concert sounds horrible. And, you know, I, I, I would never go to go see that concert. And I just thought, what is it about our current culture that automatically people are going to be negative about something as neutral as George announcing that he's performing at a concert. 
do you do you ever worry uh, in reading some of those comments that that uh, they they sometimes come across as either threatening or or um, worrisome? George and I don't because we live our lives. George and I live our lives openly, proudly, gaily, uh, and. The fact is, life is a risk. George's entire career is based on taking risk, and you can't live your life worrying about what ifs. Well, you know, a lot of celebrity couples, and I'm going to call you guys a celebrity couple, um, they wind up splitting up because <laughs> of the pressure, because of these kinds of pressure. So what's... Sh- what do you think your secret is to staying in love and in together? Brad, you're raising your hand right now. <laughs> you want to get the first word in. The answer is every morning in the last 33 years, when I get I get up first and I make George a pot of hot green tea and I bring it to the nightstand, and I also bring him the morning New York Times. Every night in the last 33 years, before we go to sleep, we always kiss each other goodnight. That's the secret. Well, you know, I think these trolls, I've never uh, encountered them uh, in in person, but they make us closer. We find our security in each other. Uh, uh, We're mutually supportive of each other. And so uh, we can go out in public and be absolutely confident that uh, we're going to be all right. And if something happens, uh, we can depend on one or the other. Uh, we, we have a genuine uh, partnership. But that's about all the time we've got um, today. And this has been terrific to uh, chat with you both about such a so decades of activism and acting uh, as, a, as a power celebrity couple. It's been fascinating. Well, thank you for winding up right now because I've been hydrating throughout. And now the urgency to dehydrate has come. <laughs> <laughs> Only George could end on that note. <laughs> George Takei's Oh My Pod is produced by Todd Beaton, Elizabeth Friedman, Evan Brechtel, Lorenzo Tioni, Jay Quo, and Tom Garudo. Special thanks to Gotham Podcast Studios.